All right, everybody, let's go ahead and come on in. And let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 49. Real quick about tonight, I'm going to say it again in the main service. Uh, we, uh, let's see here. Uh, the, the has, I'm sure all of you have been over there and seen, the floor is nice. And we've worked uh, very hard this week on hands and knees to make it uh, nicer. Um, and so for tonight, we are requesting that you wear the following footwear. You've got here, you've got many choices before you. You can go barefoot. We're going to have it we're going to have it warmed, so barefoot would be just fine. You can go with socked feet. Might be a little slick, but you can do that. Emily Viener is bringing covers for your shoes. You can put those on uh, if you would like. You can bring your own house slippers if you would like. Um, or a completely pair of fresh shoes that have not been in the snow or the ice melt or anything like that, and you bring those in. We're going to have you come in through the garage, and if you could put on some footwear that will not get ice melt or track construction dust all over the floor, that would be a wonderful help, and it would preserve the labors of those who tried to get all that stuff off the floor uh, over the last couple weeks. So that would be very kind. So I am looking forward to seeing the vast array of footwear. I'm, I'm really hoping that one of you ladies wears those big poofy like slipper shoes, you know the kind I'm talking about, like the pillow shoes for your feet? Hannah knows what I'm talking about. Who else knows what I'm talking about? Anybody? Yes. Yes. Um, or I, I think I saved from my hospital stay some of those socks that have the grippy bottoms. I, maybe I'll sport some of those. We'll see. I don't know. But if we could do that, that would be a big help to everybody. The party's at 4.30, and uh, looking forward to uh, what will hopefully be a very good night. Uh, we do need to get all the tables and chairs out after we finish up because we've got our final inspection tomorrow. Uh, and uh, if we could have some folks be willing to stick around afterward and get the tables and chairs back over here, uh, that would be a wonderful help. Okay? If you have any questions, further questions about the party, you can see me um, or Opal, and we would be more than happy to uh, help you out. Okay. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. We've been working our way through Isaiah 40 through 66, which is a mountain range of passages, and every chapter is its own peak. It just so happens that 53 and 55 and 66... 42, and so forth. These are all famous passages that get, that merit their own attention. They're vastly high peaks of Scripture. Chapter 49 is one of the hidden peaks. It's one of the peaks that scales just as high as the rest, but because of its placement, it's, and because of some difficulties in it, might be a little less explored than some of the others. But I think we'll see here, shortly after getting into it, that you'll see the beauty of Isaiah 49. One thing I want you to remember as we work through this passage is you have the benefit of about 2,700 years 
of further development. Maybe more than that, maybe, maybe more like 2,800 years of further understanding in this passage. You have the entire New Testament. You have had the Lord Jesus Christ himself explain portions of this, and you've had the Spirit of the living God who sent his Son, who sent his servant, rather, into the world explain this passage to you. You have the benefit of enormous hindsight. The people who got this the first time had none of that benefit. And so if you could read this through their ears and understand how little they understood and try to study it through their perspective, it will not only enhance your own understanding, but will give you a lot of sympathy and empathy to people who have eyes but don't see and having ears don't hear. So, let's go ahead and pick up our reading in Isaiah 49, and we'll move on from there. Isaiah 49 begins, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing, and worse than nothing, for vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. In my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. If you want to put like an alone at the end of that, that would help you understand it better. It's too light a thing that I should make you my servant. It's too light a thing. It's, it's too small to raise up Jacob alone. Instead, I will make you as a light for the nation that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I have no clue which uh, movie it is, but I sat down to watch one of the Marvel comic movies, and you could add this to the growing number of reasons I really don't like Hollywood. Iron Man is doing something, and he quotes, of himself, Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations. And the reason why I hate that so much is it's trivializing something that is very precious to believers. It's trivializing one of the wonderful prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says, I am the light of the world, Hollywood makers are turning that into 
words of a fictional character rather than the words of the everlasting God in human flesh. Well, let's work our way to that point. In Isaiah 49, we need to sort of get up to speed here, okay? Now, we only read verses 1 through 6. You might want to understand why we only read verses 1 through 6. Look at your Bibles here, and this will help you kind of understand the lay of the land. So if you have Isaiah 49, it says, Listen to me, O coastlands. Do you notice there's no, like, conjunction or and or but or yet? There's no transition. In other words, this flows directly out of what came before it. But then when we get to verse 7, we pick up on a pattern. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord. Okay? Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. Go down to verse 8. Thus says the Lord. Go down to verse 22. Thus says the Lord God. Go to chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce? So in other words, God is intending 49, 1 through 6 to flow out of 48, and then he begins a pattern of declarations. And in future weeks, we'll take up that pattern of declarations. Thus says, thus says, thus says. But this section, this introduction to our servant, flows out of chapter 48. Well, what was chapter 48? Look back with me. What was chapter 48? Well, my Bible heading says, Israel refined for God's glory. Well, that's a fair enough example, but essentially Isaiah 48 is God dealing with a rebellious child. Israel has gone away from him. Israel has run away. Israel has turned to other gods that can't satisfy. They've fashioned idols out of trees, and then they warm themselves next to the wood that comes from those trees. And they say, ah, you're my God, even though they're controlling this God. And that's the point. They're choosing lifeless, personless idols that serve their needs, that they can control. God hates this, and he's dealing with the rebellion of his people. And so God is calling his nation back to himself. And when we get to 49, God moves the conversation forward a little bit. How is God going to do this? Beneath my deck, we store our firewood. The snow falls and lands on the deck, and then things warm up. And the water drips through the cracks of the decking and drips onto the firewood, and then all the way to the bottom where the concrete is, and then it cools off again, and that firewood gets frozen in there like a brick. And so when I help the kids get the firewood out, this year they've been responsible to bring the firewood inside the house, and we're going through it very fast, but then I walked out there and realized everything from my knee below is untouched because they couldn't get it unstuck from the frozen mass of ice and firewood. So what did I do? I said, children, go inside and get me Big B, okay? Big B is a yellow and black sledgehammer that is ginormous. And I take Big B and I smash it into the firewood and it breaks it loose and we bring it inside, thaw it out, 
and then it becomes our firewood. Israel is like a stuck piece of firewood in the ice that will not be moved. How is God going to get it from here to there? Well, he's going to use an instrument. He's going to use his version of Big B, but his is much better than my unthinking sledgehammer. He has a servant. He has a servant. And this servant is actually going to thaw the hearts of his people with his words. And so here we have, listen to me, O coastlands. We are introduced in 49, reintroduced rather, to God's servant. This instrument in the Lord's hand who will make his nation useful to him again. He says that this servant will not be a king. This servant isn't going to be a political personage. We know he'll be a king, but that's not the focus of what Isaiah is talking about here. He's focusing in on a different aspect of the Lord's ministry, of the servant's ministry. This isn't the first time the servant has been mentioned. Go back with me to chapter 42, okay? And I want you to notice something about this, and I, I want you to see if, if you can pick up on this, okay? Let's read this, the servant song of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now go to 49. Tell me if you can see the difference. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And on it goes. What's the difference between 42 and 49? Yes, Daniel. That's exactly right. 42, it's a biography, and 49 is an autobiography. Okay? It's an autobiography. The servant who will not cry aloud in the streets, the servant who will not get discouraged, the servant who will draw his people to himself, has a rebellious child in front of him, and he breaks forth into speech about himself. And here's what he says. He says, listen to me, O coastlands. There's a few things about this opening statement we need to notice. The first is this. If I were to tell you the phrase, listen to me, that sounds pretty common, doesn't it? So I probably read that a lot in Scripture. But the fact is, you haven't. <laughs> There's only one writer in Scripture who uses this exact phrase, listen to me. And it's only Isaiah who uses it. 
And every time Isaiah uses it, it is God who is talking. Every other time but this one. So is this an exception? Or is this saying something about the servant? I think it's the second one. The second one, the servant is talking like God talks. Now that's going to be a challenge here in a minute because of some other things that we'll read and might explain why people were confused by this passage prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you have a person talking like God. And he says words that God says. He says, listen to me, O coastlands. Listen to me, O islands, is the idea. Islands, coastlands, you peoples from afar. The servant is saying, I don't care who you are. I'm not talking to the people of Israel anymore. This tiny little subset of people among all the peoples on planet Earth. I'm talking to every other person who's ever lived anywhere on the earth. This is a message for humanity. And he calls humanity to give attention to what he's saying. Listen to me. And he's speaking like God speaks. He's taking the prerogative of deity. I want you to notice that this person is a preacher, okay? His first words, listen to me. In other words, he's going to talk. Look at verse 2. He said, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Uh, He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. We're told that this person will be a speaker, uh, a, a preacher, a person who speaks, a person who lifts his voice, and we hear the idea of a sharp sword as opposed to a dull sword is that it's effective. And the effectiveness in a sword was its sharpness. And so here the speaker is saying, I'm like an instrument that's extremely effective, an instrument trained for war. He says, I'm like an arrow that's been polished. This is uh, warriors, then as now, give great attention to the things they take into battle with them. We've got a few folks who are, who've been soldiers in here, and I'm sure they'll tell you that on the eve of battle, soldiers become uh, obsessive <laughs> about their tools of warfare because their life depends on them working. Warriors then were no different. They would go into the forest and they would find shafts of limbs that were perfectly straight. They would strip them of their bark. They would try to get ones that were shaped in just a way. And then they would roll them and polish them and give them great attention. Because when an arrow shoots, ancients knew this, the shaft wobbles and bends. They wanted one whose wobble and bend would create a true arc. And so they would give great attention to their arrow shafts. They would 
give great attention to the sharpness and the composition of their sword. And so we see here that this person is not only a speaker, he's not only a a preacher, but he's someone over whom, an instrument over whom the Lord has given meticulous attention to. He has prepared him. And we're told that he's actually hidden this instrument of warfare away until just the right time. He says, you've hidden me in the shadow of your hand. The idea is the hollow of your hand. Something that you would keep very close and personal to you. It's not available for others to take. He kept this particular arrow in his quiver for just the right moment that he would need it because it was the best arrow that he had. Many of you have read, for example, The Hobbit. And in that book, one of the warriors has a, has a specific arrow that he's weighted and held, a, held aside for just the right moment. That's the image that Isaiah is presenting here. It's an instrument of warfare for both near war and far. Now there's, and this person is a preacher who is talking like God. But imagine that you're a Jewish person living in the realm of Hezekiah and you hear this prophecy of Isaiah and what you will hear next is guaranteed to confuse you. You can believe that God is raising up a holy warrior. That in fact, as God himself, other prophets have said as much. Moses says that there's a prophet coming who the Jews understood was of divine importance. Isaiah has talked about a holy warrior in other passages. Other prophets have talked about a holy warrior that is God himself. But suddenly, you would be very confused because this prophet, this prophet who talks like God, this holy warrior, is human. This holy warrior is person, like fleshy. Read right here. He says, you called me from the womb. You called me from the womb. He says from, and if, if you're thinking, oh, well, maybe it's some sort of heavenly womb. <laughs> no, he called me from my mother's womb. This person has a mom. This would have been incredibly confusing for a Jewish person. Now, Isaiah has mentioned this before. In Isaiah chapter 7, we're told, behold, a virgin will conceive and she'll bear a son. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Here was the first holy warrior born of a woman. But there's yet another confusing part of this. Go with me to um, verse 3. Because this holy warrior who talks like God, who is also human, has a name. Okay, 
And here's his name. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I am glorified. Now go down with me to chapter, uh, same chapter, go down with me to verse 6. He says, it is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up Jacob, the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay? So here we have an individual being called Israel who will restore Israel. Now, for those of us who are unaware, let's just go back in history a little bit. We're going to be talking about that this morning in our main worship service. There was a man named Abraham. Many of you know him. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Okay? I don't know about the I am one of them, and so are you, but we're going to forget that part of the song, okay? That's a, that's a theological can of worms that I'm threatening to open, but I won't. Well, Father Abraham had one son. Actually, he had lots of sons. He, uh, after Sarah died, he married a woman named Keturah, and they had several kids. He had another son named Ishmael. So Abraham did have a lot of sons. And one of them's name was Isaac. And Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was big dude, big scary, hairy dude, um, who was a militia man. He was a warrior. He raised up his own army. They were uh, mercenaries. He was a soldier for hire, and Esau was in charge. Jacob, however, was a trickster. He was a con man at times. And his conning got him in hot water with Esau. And Jacob, the name that means heel grabber, had to run away from his brother Esau. And he stayed away for a long time, and God said, it's time for you to go back. Jacob is coming back with his family, and he learns that Esau is coming to meet him with an army of people. And Jacob reckons that he's a dead man. And so that night, he starts to pray. And the Lord shows up. And the Lord knocks him to the ground, literally. And the passage says that God, the angel of the Lord, wrestled Jacob. Jacob didn't wrestle the angel. The angel wrestled Jacob. And it was a mismatch. And the angel wrestled him all night long. But Jacob clung to the angel. And even though he was getting beaten up pretty badly, there was still some strength left in his hands. And he clung on to this person that he realized was the Lord. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And what the angel was revealing was something deep inside of Jacob 
And Jacob had to be stripped of everything else. He had to be stripped of his wealth. He had to be stripped of his life. He had to be stripped of his family. His deceiving and his trickery weren't going to work anymore. And at the end of it all, Jacob said, what I really need is your blessing. And the angel said, I will bless you. And from now on, your name shall be Israel. Because you have wrestled with God, you have striven with God, and prevailed. You were deceiver, heel grabber. Now, your prevailer. And for the rest of the story, when Jacob acts like old Jacob, the text calls him Jacob. And when Jacob acts like new Jacob, the text calls him Israel. So this name was first given to an individual whose name is Israel. It came at a low point of his life when all he wanted was the Lord. All those who followed Israel became Israelites. They followed in that national name. So let's bring that little bit of understanding back to Isaiah 49. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And the mission of Israel, according to verse 6, is not just to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's not just to bring back the preserved of Israel, but to be a light for the nations. So how are we to understand this? We're to understand it in this way, that when God calls his servant Israel, he's one person who bears the covenant name that God gave to Jacob as his redeemed name. The holy warrior has a name. Striver. Wrestler. And his mission is to save all those who bear his family name. His mission is to save all those who truly belong to him and all the nations and coastlands beyond who look to him for help. The irony is that this person named Israel, named Striver, will come through that nation. He came into his own, and his own received him. What's the next word? Not. The light of the world came into the world, and his own received him not. But he's the light. So, 
This servant is a prophet. This servant is singular. I'm out of time. Last thing, okay? Last thing. This servant holds the vicissitudes of life in perfect tension with his theology. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Look at verse 5. I'm sorry. Look at verse 4. When, his, when this man, Israel, when this holy warrior comes into the world and his own, does not, his own do not receive him, there is a great temptation for him to be discouraged. It says right here, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. That's the temptation that will come to him. I've spent all, these, all my life trying to call these people back, and what do I get in return? They whip my back. They put me on a cross. And in fact, even those who loved Jesus and said they would not abandon him ran from him. And he died naked and alone. And had the devil telling him it was in vain. The word vain means wind, like a breath. It's literally, you know when... It's like October, and it's the morning, and you're pumping gas, and you go, "Ah." and for the first time since April, you see your breath. The noun, the the vapor that you see, that's the word. It's gone. So temporary and fleeting and gone. He says, He's tempted to think this was in vain. It was for nothing. But this person fights back against that temptation. And he keeps his theology front and center. And he says, no, my right is with the Lord. And my recompense, the idea is vindication. It doesn't matter to me if the world of people fail to see me for who I am because I have an audience of one. I labor to please God alone. And it's in him I'm looking for a well done from. And I don't care if nobody else, I don't care if anybody else comes to me. My, my chief, the object of my desire is, the Lord, is, is God. And I'm giving all my reputation, I'm giving all my vindication, all my recompense to him. And when God hears this, he rises. You can almost sense God standing up off of his throne. And he says, it is not enough that I merely allow you to be honored by Jewish people. You're going to be worshipped from sea to sea. You are going to be worshipped the world over. The nations will bow at your feet. In fact, we're told every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the recompense Jesus deserves. And God will do it for him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. Now, before we wrap up, aren't you glad you have the benefit of 2,700 years of reflection? Would you have understood this the first time Isaiah said it? I know I wouldn't have. And it took the Lord and men like the Apostle Paul to start to weave all these connections together for us. And we go, oh, that's what was meant. How glorious. How glorious. Well, I hope that prepared us for worship. I left out too much. We'll hit it next time around, maybe. All right, let's pray. Father, give us grace as we prepare our hearts for worship. Lord, may we begin again to deliver the recompense that is due Jesus' great name. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.